1: Oh, I've been
2: thinking. Oh, what do you want to do there Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call
0: me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host, Blaine Daller. How are you today, Blaine? I'm oh, doing well. How about you, Trey? Good, thank you. I'm feeling particularly well because today we're joined by a very special guest. He's the host of Pod Dillon, MASHcast, Film and Water for All Mankind, and co-host of several other podcasts. Co-founder of one of the best podcasting networks out there, the Fire and Water Network, Mr. Rob Kelly. Thanks for being with us, Rob.
1: Rosebud. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't get over that, but all right, um, yes, I'm I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for that lovely intro.
0: You're more than welcome. This time we're looking at How Green Was My Valley, directed by John Ford and released on October 28, 1941. I'll give a brief synopsis, or at least attempt to have it be brief. The film focuses on Hugh Morgan. Hugh, about to leave the valley of his birth for the last time, reminisces of a time before it was blackened by coal dust. His memories take us to a time when he was a young lad who idolized his brothers and father. Every day they come home from the mine, eat and wash together, and live a simple life. Soon there's a wedding, as his older brother Ivor marries. The happiness soon fades when the mine owner decreases wages and the men threaten to go on a strike. This drives a wedge in the family as Gilwin Morgan, the head of the clan and mine foreman, is opposed to the strike while his uh, sons support the strike. The village becomes hostile to the Morgans, and Beth Morgan confronts the protesters at a rally with young Hugh. On the way home, she falls into a frozen lake. Hugh jumps in to attempt to rescue her, and the accident leaves Hugh temporarily paralyzed. He's comforted during his convalescence by his sister, Angred, and Mr. Groffid, the vicar. The strike ends, and the Morgan family reconciles. The son of the mine owner comes to court Angred, but her and Mr. Griffith are in love with each other. When Mr. Gruffydd refuses to act on his love, Angred marries the son of the mine owner and moves away. Hugh starts school where he's picked on for his rural upbringing, but he does well. Things continue to become hard for the Morgan family. Ivor is killed on the same day as his son's birth. The mine lays off Hugh's older brothers, so they leave again, this time permanently. Hugh wins a scholarship to university, but turns it down in order to get a job in the mine and provide for his sister-in-law and nephew. Andred returns to the country home of her husband's, but without her husband with her. The townspeople spread vicious gossip about her and Mr. Crawford, which results in the deacons of the church firing him. Before he leaves, there is a cave-in in and mister Crawford and Hugh rush to save the trapped miners, including Hugh's father. Father and son see each other down in the mine, Mr. Gruffydd and others free him, but he dies from his injuries while being lifted out of the mine elevator. The movie ends with vignettes shown of the Morgan family together as the older Hugh closes out his memories and leaves the valley for the last time. And that is how green was my valley. Rob, I believe you said before we started recording, this was your first time seeing it?
1: Yeah, I had never seen this movie. I always, uh, I've been a movie fan for many, for all my whole life. And I, ever since I became a fan of Orson Welles and and in particular Citizen Kane, I always kind of held a grudge against this movie because it beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture. So I just never got around to seeing it. So yeah, this is, uh, watching it for this uh, record is the first time I've ever had a chance to see it. And what about you, Blaine?
2: It's actually my second time. So I saw
1: it about a year
2: ago because my wife's favorite movie is Gone with the Wind. And when I was collecting the movies for this podcast and getting all the best picture winners when HMV in Canada was going bankrupt and all their product was dirt cheap. Yeah, I just had it here and she saw another movie with Maureen O'Hara, who obviously was a big part of uh, Gone with the Wind. So she said, yeah, let's give it a try. So we watched it. And yeah, so this was my second time viewing when we rewatched it last night for this podcast. And you, Trey? This is at least my second time.
0: I I don't know if Rob will share this memory or not. I know from listening to some of Rob's shows, his family was an early adopter of cable as well. Mm -hmm. In the early days of cable, two of the big networks that you got were WTBS out of Atlanta and WGN out of Chicago, which were basically UHF stations, but they became national stations because of cable. And WGN on the weekends used to have their own kind of family version of masterpiece theater that they called family classics but it would have the host in the armchair in the wood-paneled study and they would play predominantly films that were adaptations of great literature and or films that focused on kid stars so for example Shirley Temple and Heidi and the Little Princess got shown endlessly because it fit both of those criteria, because of young riding McDowell, who's really the breakout star in How Green Was My Valley, I believe I first saw How Green Was My Valley on that show as well.
2: All right. Yeah, so we've we got the plot summary here. Now, as Trey said, this is a John Ford film, and he is actually one of the most nominated directors of all time. He's got a very impressive list of credits here.
1: Yeah, he won, like, four Best Director Oscars, which no one's ever done. So, I mean, you know, wow.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a guy whose IMDb says he's best known for The Quiet Man, The Grapes of Wrath, Stagecoach, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And Stagecoach was 1939, Grapes of Wrath was 1940. So when this was getting put together, it was originally going to be William Wyler who was going to direct it. And Zucker wanted it to basically put God with the wind to shame. He was picturing a four-hour, full-color epic for this thing. And it took long enough to put it together that William Wyler was no longer available because he was going to be borrowed from another studio. But then John Ford became available, and they finally got it made because no one was willing to fund this massive Gone at the Wind style epic that Zucker wanted to do when they figured joining the war was imminent. But they were willing to fund it with John Ford, when he came in and said, "I can do it for under a million dollars," yeah. and they knew <laughs> the work would be good, because it's John Ford. He had a temper that was rather famous, but the finished product would rarely leave you wanting. Right? He he would make a good movie, and he would make a financially successful movie. With uh, I mean, maybe not a hundred percent of the time, but he had a stronger track record than most of his competitors in Hollywood.
1: It says something about his career that, that this film is not one of his most famous films, and yet it still won the, the Best Picture Oscar. Like, that's how many good movies he had, that this one is further down on the list, even though for most other directors, this would be their career pinnacle.
2: Yeah, I might also say more about this film, too, but we'll get to that later. And I I wonder if his involvement
0: is the reason why the Welsh become more Irish in this film. Yeah, that's that's possible, yeah. Yeah, Because it is supposed to be a Welsh setting, but just the actors who were cast and the accents that they inflect, it has much more of an Irish feel. And I know that John Ford had Irish ancestry, so that was an area he was particularly enamored with.
2: Yeah, and there was also a bit of that Irish stereotype, because my parents are both from Ireland. I'm the first Canadian-born generation out of well 20 or 30. I think my grandmother tracked it back once so there there's a wide variety of accents in ireland but this particular accent is the it's the one that you get around dublin and that's the most common in hollywood and that's what people came to know as the single irish accent and that's because a lot of the irish immigrants we saw at this time that had come over to escape the potato famine were coming in because the ruc or the royal ulster constabulary was known for having one of the best police forces on the planet. So as the individual communities in North America were putting, you know, when they were putting their their police forces together, they would often hire people from either Belfast or Dublin. Uh, that's actually why my grandfather came to Canada. He was a police officer in Belfast and was brought over as part of that RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. So you get that one consistent, Sorry, and I said Dublin, I meant Belfast because that's obviously the royal side for Northern Ireland. But that's, that's where you get that one consistent Irish the Irish accent from. So that's the one that Hollywood was looking for because that's the one the average person on the street would hear as the Irish accent because that was the one they were most familiar with. And that's also where they, the stereotypical New York Irish cop comes from because a lot of the Irish police officers in New York had, or a lot of police officers in New York had been brought over from Ireland to teach the New York Police Department how to run a police
1: department. <laughs> the emotional reserve of these characters really kept... I had to keep reminding myself that this was not Ireland because the characters are so kind of quiet and taciturn with one another that, you know, and that reminds me a lot of my family. So it was just kind <laughs> of like I had to keep saying, oh, no, no, this is not, this is not Ireland. This is, this is England. I, I even way further into the film after they've already explicitly stated where they are, I kept saying, oh, no, 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 this is not Ireland. It was because it just it reminded me a lot of, of some of my family.
2: There is that, and I wonder how much of that, you know, how, how stoic they are is just something that comes from having hard lives. Like, I, I suspect these people are used to dealing with losses. So it may not twig as severely for them when they lose someone because that's not a once or twice in a lifetime thing. That's a once or twice a year thing.
0: The concern seemed to be mostly about preserving the family unit. So, Ivor's death, as hard as it was on the family, that was an accepted part of the life. The middle sons moving out because they politically disagree with the father, that was much harder for them to take.
1: That's a rough scene where the, they all stand up against the father because he's just so stern with them and you know i mean he's 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 holding on to this so hard that he's even willing to sort of break apart his family because he just can't accept what they want and it's it's and you know that that shot that ford uses a lot of the row of houses leading up the road to the mine at the top i mean it feels so kind of depressing to feel like you know you're this place where you have to work so hard and you might even die is just like you never escape it. It's right out your door the minute you look out. Uh, it, it feels like Dracula's castle in some ways. It's just so, to me, so ominous because as you talk about, like their lives are so hard. Like having to be a minor every day just seems so brutal. But man, you don't even, you know, you, your house is like right, like, you know, right down the road from it. It just feels very oppressive.
0: And yet they choose it. And, you know, this, for some of the characters, this may be the only avenue open to them. But, Hugh has that shot at university. He, he has a possible way out, but that's, that's not what his family does. He wants to be like his father and his brothers. He wants to work in the mine. That's his duty. That's his honor.
2: Hmm. They do deal with a lot of themes, and there is that, that drive to hold on to tradition, which was common with the cultures. So it is, it is a good movie if you want to see a, sort of an Industrial Revolution-era story. You know, it, it is another one of these films that the Academy loved at the time, which is just tracking a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen that in, what, Simran, in Cavalcade, even to a degree in Gone with the Wind, although that was more one member of the family than the family as a whole. But, yeah, that's, that's something that they loved.
0: What did either of you think of the choice to not age the characters? Because as you mentioned, those other two films... To me, that was kind of a key difference between this and some of the other family epics we've seen is there's definitely a passage of time, but it's very indeterminate. Hugh doesn't grow up and become replaced with another actor. They really don't try and use makeup to age anyone, unlike those other two films that you've mentioned to where they're trying to give very distinct passage of time tying it into very distinct events other than the fact that this is pre-industrial coal-mined Welshingville or coal mining welsh village there's nothing really to place it in a particular point in time
1: it didn't bother me at all I mean, in fact I, I sort of liked that we were kept the, with the same actors throughout the thing i i did read that there was that four-hour version initially thought and like i, I we we can get into like it later on like i can't I can't, I thought this movie was very, very slow moving and, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but like, I just can't imagine this at four hours. Like I just, like, it just seems, that just seems so incredibly elongated. And I'm guessing if they had done the four hour version, they would have had to have done actors replacing other actors. Cause then the, the span of time would have been too huge to jump around in. I mean, Roddy McDowell plays a bunch of different ages and he never looks any older, you kind of get away with it because, you know, you do want to stick with the same actors, but man, the four hour one. Yeah. That would have been, there. just would have, it would have been a huge cast. Cause you could not have kept up with everybody looking the same over that period of time. Yeah. I
2: don't know. I think I might have to read the novel it's based on before I can really answer that. Cause I mean, I thought they could do a four hour version. I'm betting that means that they stripped a lot of the the story and the plot from that novel out. So that makes me wonder how much time was covered in that novel. Were there more subplots that happened in the same era as this, in which case you could get away with having the same actors because there's just more going on in the neighborhood? Like maybe see more of what led people to be starting the rumors about Angharad and Mr. Griffith. Maybe, you know, see some of, you know, the meeting of Ivor and Bronwyn or something like that, right? There's, it, it really depends on what's cut out. But yeah, if you're, if the other two hours would have just been taking those vignettes at the end and showing them in their full detail, and what we saw was just the first half, then yeah, either you'd have to recast or you'd really push credibility with the audience and maybe have to pick a slightly older actor than Roddy McDowell in the first place to be more of that average age in the span they're looking at.
0: Yeah, it, it's. I'm going to call it a nitpick for lack of a better word, but the, the there were two things that struck me about this film, but they didn't occur to me until I was doing the synopsis and preparing for the podcast. And the question of how long this is unfolding over was one of them. When I was watching the movie, it didn't occur to me. When I was putting together the synopsis, and I went, wait a minute, throughout the span of the movie, Hugh starts school, and then he graduates for school, from school, and he gets a scholarship to university. I know the British school system is much different than here in the States, but it's not so different that that could have been one year. That's when I started questioning when I was putting those connections together when I was doing the synopsis.
2: Yeah, it would have to be a few years. It didn't have to be as old as they are now. Basically, when he started school, he would have been more than the five or six that they are now. Right. Or I guess the, the four or five, because the, just the history of public education... Just my day job, I'm a teacher, so I've looked into this somewhat. And public education in Western Europe started as a way to eliminate juvenile delinquency, mostly for the boy children. Because at at the time that public education began, the oldest boys were being raised to take over the family business. The girls were being raised to be mothers. So the oldest boys had a place to be. They'd be with dad in the blacksmith shop or stables or whatever they were doing The youngest boys would be home getting mothered by the mother and the sisters. And the middle boys were constantly getting into trouble because they were old enough to take care of themselves but didn't have anything to do. (laughs) So they started schools to give them something to do. And if they happened to learn along the way, that was great. But it wasn't necessarily the primary focus. That's part of the reason they had all the grades in one schoolhouse, all that stuff. The idea of having this idealistic, let's get an education out of it, came later when they also realized, oh yeah, these, the women who didn't end up married with kids, well, they could have an excuse if they took over for someone else's kids, they could become the school moms. So at this time, if a woman was a teacher, there were some very strict regulations in terms of how she would dress. Like there was literally a three inch window for how far the hem of the dress would be from her ankle. It had to be more, no more than this and no less than that she could not be seen in public with a man who was not her father or brother. Like, you know, these stories about the the school mom who falls in love, that didn't fly. When you became a teacher, you were devoting your life to celibacy. Your students were your children from that point forward. Yeah, I I can see that. Because at this time, because it was designed for the juvenile delinquency, you weren't expected to start school until you were eight or nine. So yeah, you're right. It's you know, it wouldn't be 13 years between starting school and graduating and going to university, but it's probably at least five or six, quite probably more than that. So yeah, there is there is some time here, but they I think they, they blurred it, and I think it was good, because Roddy McDowell is a good actor for his age, and the odds of finding three child actors of that quality to carry this film, it's slim to none, and it changes your budget and you know, it changes your shooting schedule because now if you've got different kids, well then you must film, you know, the first part of the movie in this schedule and the second part of the movie in this schedule when each of those children are available. So yeah, I get why they did it, but yeah, I, I also get on the rewatch when I was, I was thinking about the, the timescales too, it is I think deliberately vague so that you don't sit here going, well, he doesn't look six years older.
1: I, I had never I had never seen Roddy McDowell as a child before and it was it was just weird to me because I could see that face. I recognized the face that I'm familiar with from, you know, Planet of the Apes and stuff. Although of course his face is not in that movie. But I recognized him and just seeing him on like a child's body just looked kinda weird to me. I was like, Oh, there's there's Roddy McDowell, but he's like a fetus Roddy McDowell. <laughs> this is strange. By the way, that's um you mentioned why the schools were started. That's why we started the Fire and Water Podcast Network, was to keep Shag out of trouble. That really was the beginning of that.
2: So. Oh, man. I wish it would have been more successful. I
1: know. Well, we tried. But, you know, there's only so much we can do. It's Florida. There's no laws down there.
2: Yeah, but you get some great headlines.
1: <laughs> it's true. Anything that says Florida, man, that's Shag. That's who they're talking about.
2: Yeah. Although, to be fair to Florida, I don't know if the population is that much crazier than the rest or if it's just that's one of the few places where every arrest is a matter of public record, <laughs> So that's just much easier to find in Florida than elsewhere.
1: I just think the the, the, the the continent shakes a little and all the crazy people fall downwards and they fall into Florida. I think that's how it works.
0: That's what the panhandle ha- is. is the safety net to stop them from going <laughs> into the ocean. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, exactly right. Exactly right.
0: <laughs> uh, but, but Roddy McDowell's great in this. I mean, I was trying to think. I, I can't think of as many child stars who come across as polished at this
2: age. No, I think he was 12 when he made it, something like that. Like It is very rare to find a capable child actor, even these days. It is very difficult to do, and they pulled it off here.
0: And I want to talk about Walter Pidgeon a little bit. One of the joys of doing this podcast is rediscovering actors that we tend to have forgotten over time. People like, you know, we talked about Frederick March quite a bit on. Um,
1: oh, I love Frederick March. This
0: podcast and Paul Muni. This is the first movie we've covered with w- Walter Pidgeon in it. We've got another one coming up, but he famously won Best Actor for uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. What did you What did you guys think of his performance here?
2: It was good. It's, aside from Roddy McDowell, none of them really stood out. And with McDowell, that was mostly his age. Everybody else, it was such a naturalistic style. Actually, think back, James Garner said that the sign of a good actor is that you can never catch them acting. And that's what we have here. At no point do I see actors, I just see the characters. And that's the whole cast. They're just playing their roles. And he was one of them. You, you get the tension between him and Angharad, played by Maureen O'Hara. And you know that there's an attraction there that they're not allowed to act on. And they don't, but that tension is there all the time. Even before the characters actually start to say it. But the way they play it is just, it's very understated. So you know how they feel about each other, but they look like people who have these feelings, who are trying to hide these feelings. So you can see it as an undercurrent. It's a fine line to walk, and Pigeon O 'Hara both pull it off and i I am with you, Rob,
0: in your love for Myrna Loy, but I will see your Myrna Loy and raise you at Maureen O'Hara. I, I cannot <laughs> pass up any movie she is in.
1: I regarding yes, I liked her very much in fact, I, it was sort of funny. It reminded me back when I worked at the video store, Movies Unlimited in the in the '90s. Good Lord. I remember we had this film on on VHS and the box art was this big close-up of Walter Pigeon and Maureen O'Hara in like a like a passionate embrace. And if you look at the box art, you think that that's what the movie's about. And I kind of went into this movie thinking that was going to be the, the central story. And it really isn't. Walter Pigeon isn't really in it all that much. <clears throat> Maureen O'Hara is in it a lot, but she's kind of off in the background sort of pining away for him sort of silently, except for that one scene where they kind of like confess, you know, their love for each other, or at least their, their effect, their um, attraction. But he's not really in it that much, which is too bad because I really liked him in this movie. I've always liked Walter Pidgeon. He's in a couple of really great movies that I'm a big fan. He's in Forbidden Planet, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorites. He's in a great little movie called Executive Suite from 1954, which is this kind of like boardroom drama uh, thing, which is great. And he's in another movie, um, a uh, a Otto Preminger movie called Advise and Consent, which I think is a masterpiece, and and is is just all like a political backstabbing kind of thing. And he's great in all those movies. And I really wanted him to be in this movie more. I love him in his cape. He's got that cool cape that he walks around in. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, hey, he looks he looks boss. So I just wish he had been in it more. Like he kind of comes and goes into the plot and like steps in and does certain things and whatever. But I kept waiting for him to kind of take the center stage and he never really did.
0: He, he's got one of those great phone book voices.
1: You know, when you say you oh, can listen man, to somebody yeah. read a phone book. Oh, and he's got that jet black hair and he's got that, that voice. It, he's great. In it, and I really enjoy it. But like I said, I wanted to see more of him. Like le- to be honest, I wanted less of the old fuddy duddy dad <laughs> and <laughs> more of Walter pigeon, but that wasn't what this movie was. No. Well,
2: hopefully we'll see more of pigeon in uh, next month's movie. To see P-Stars in the next winner as well.
1: I'm not, Mrs. Miniver, I've not gotten around to see that movie yet. I, I've seen so many classic movies, but that's another one that just has eluded me, and I, I I've, it's on my list of things to see, so i got to get around to that.
0: Bump it up, Rob. I I, I don't want to go into too much because it's our next one, but knowing how much you enjoy Shadow of a Doubt, Teresa Wright is in Mrs. Miniver as well.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah I really got to get to it. Yep. Yeah, and actually looking ahead, Mrs. The IMDb likes to
2: have these more like this things. And to me, it's telling about this particular movie. The more like this list has Mrs. Miniver, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Life of Emil Zola, Going My Way, Muni on the Bounty, and You Can't Take It With You. So their top six recommendations are other Best Picture winners. Hmm. Which makes me wonder if a lot of the voters who are doing this and who are interacting with this particular page on the IMDb are doing so in rewatches of the Best Picture winners, and otherwise they're not necessarily coming back to watch this. And I admit, if it wasn't a Best Picture winner, I don't know that I would have decided to pick it up and then make time to watch it.
0: it, it it's one that's been on my to-do list, but solely because of Maureen O'Hara and Roddy McDowell. I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. I, I don't know if we want to jump to the the discussion that, we've all been hinting at yet or not but i i've i enjoyed this quite a bit and looking at some of the awards that it won i understand why it won some of them but yeah it, it was not on my
2: top 10 movies i have to watch list all right so yeah you know what because of that elephant in the room that's been hinted at already <laughs> why don't we jump to to who we'd recommend this to and then go back and talk about what else was nominated and how they stacked up for the year. So if you were to, to recommend this to a particular audience, which audience would you point this to? I would say if you like
0: rural family drama of a certain era, this film's for you. The film that I was most surprised wasn't on that list when you were do, um, on the IMDb, IMDb page is, I would say if you like The Quiet Man this would be another film that you might enjoy i understand why wgn had it on its family classics there are a few themes in terms of what the town is suspecting uh, mr griffith and angrid of having an affair but it it's nothing explicit and this really all does seem to be from the perception of this young boy or the older man looking back at his childhood. You, you're you are seeing this through Hugh's eyes, not the eyes of some older impartial observer.
2: Yeah, I would say for those of you who, especially if you were saying, "No, oh, Trey and Blaine, you're nuts. Cavalcade and Simmer deserve that win." If you're in that category, definitely check this out because this is another entry in that genre of that rustic family epic. Of the three, I would say this is the best. So yeah it is it but it is more of uh the memoir style like Trey is saying it's that one person looking back rather than you know just the other ones were more of the impartial observer and you just watch the family over the generations but no this is just someone talking about a, a key time in his childhood so it feels a little more grounded and personal than those other films
1: you know, it's something that, that, that this film reminded me of when I got to the end of it, where they, they have the vignettes where you see the family in a flashback the way they were in the beginning of the film. It reminded me actually at the end of um, The Godfather Part Two, mm-hmm. where we have the where we have the flashback to the family back when they were still together. And we see James, we see Sonny and Michael and and, and Tom and Fredo. And they're talking about that their father's coming and like. I would in a weird way, I would almost say if you liked the Godfather movies, I think you might like this. I would I would put an asterisk to that and say if the reason you like the Godfather movies is because of the violence and the sex, you would not like this movie (laughs) because this is not that at all. But if you if you I think the themes are there about the dissolution of a family due to like what it has to do to survive and i think if you enjoy the godfather movies as a view of what one family how one family contorts and changes over the generations uh in america i think you could get the same benefit from this movie of saying look what being part of the minds did to this multiple generations look at what it did to this town look at what it did to this family how it broke them apart and how it literally kills them in some way so i think there's some similar stuff there and i have to wonder if Francis Ford Coppola, who obviously was a fan of John Ford, didn't see How Green is My Valley and took that vignette idea and put it in Godfather 2. Because as it, it, soon as I saw that scene of all of them around the dinner table and with no dialogue, just just a flashback, it immediately made me think of that final scene in Godfather 2.
2: That's a great call out.
1: Thank you.
2: So now let's let's run through, you know, first what else was there and... You know what awards it was nominated for, what it won, and then we'll look at how it stacks up to the others in retrospect, looking at how it was ranked on Letterboxd and IMDb. So yeah, obviously it won the Outstanding Motion Picture Award. It beat out Blossoms in the Dust, Citizen Kane, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant York, and Suspicion. Kind of tipping my hand for whether or not the Academy made the right choice there. I've seen four of those and. I would say that this is the fourth best of them. Not that it's bad, but... Best Director, John Ford won for this, How Green Is My Valley, beating out Orson Welles for Citizen Kane, Alexander Hall for Here Comes Mr. Jordan, William Wyler for The Little Foxes, and Howard Hawks for Sergeant York. Best Actor went to Gary Cooper in Sergeant York. There were no nominees for this film, although the other nominees were Cary Grant, Walter Houston, Robert Montgomery, and Orson Welles. Joan Fontaine won Best Actress for Suspicion. Up against Betty Davis, Olivia De Havilland, Greer Garson, and Barbara Stanwyck. So again, no nominations from this film. This did win Best Supporting Actor, so Donald Crisp, who played that father that didn't grab Rob's attention as much as Walter <laughs> Pigeon. No, not as much. Ended up taking home the Oscar for this.
1: People like it when they, people Oscars like giving awards to guys who play crusty old mean guys, and I think it's. I think yeah, I get I. I could see why he got it. I think I think Donald Crisp had a good performance. I just disliked the character so much it was hard for me to separate the two.
2: I could see that, yeah. So he beat out Walter Brennan, Charles Coburn, James Gleason, and Sidney Greenstreet.
1: Oh! <laughs>
2: yeah, if you want the, 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 the crusty old guy, Sidney Greenstreet and Maltese Falcon oh. it definitely fits that bill. Yeah. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Mary Astor won for The Great Little Lie, beating out Sarah Allgood, who played... Mrs. Morgan here, the mother. Other nominations were Patricia Collins and Teresa Wright, both for The Little Foxes, and Margaret Witcherly for Sergeant York. Best Original Screenplay went to Citizen Kane, Yeah. Herman J. Mankiewicz, <laughs> and Orson Welles. And yeah, Herman J. Mankiewicz, yes, that is the Mankiewicz family. Yep. The, mm-hmm. the, the Mankiewicz who hosted on Turner Classics for a long time. And Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who got creative consulting credit but should have gotten writer credit had his wga dues been paid up for the first two superman movies with by uh richard donner uh, that, that's rob's good friend dick donner
1: my my good friend dick donner yes
2: <laughs> all right uh so yeah they beat out uh, the nominees for devil and miss Jones, Sgt. sergeant york tall dark and handsome and tom dick and harry so that was best original screenplay best screenplay went to the team for here comes mr jordan beating out hold back the dawn this one how green was my valley the little foxes and the maltese falcon so that one they all talk about what they're based on so i suspect that that's what is now considered best adaptation best original story went to here comes mr jordan there's up against uh, ball of fire lady eve meet john doe and night train to munich best documentary went to churchill's island i'm gonna skim and just announce the winners and so not all the nominees now for the categories that that How Green Is My Valley wasn't eligible for. So Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel went to Of Pups and Puzzles by MGM. Also by MGM, Main Street on the March won the Best Live Action Two Reel Short. Best Short Cartoon went to Lend a Paw by Disney. Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture went to All That Money Can Buy. That is a long list of nominees. So there were 20 nominees for this category in this year, including Jeez. How Green Was My Valley. But yeah, we'll just stick to Bernard Herrmann won for All That Money Can Buy, which is interesting because Bernard Herrmann was also nominated for his work on Citizen Kane this year.
1: <laughs> he had a good year. Yep.
2: Best scoring of a musical picture, that went to Frank Churchill and Oliver Wallace for Dumbo. Best original song was Last Time I Saw Paris by Lady Be Good. Best sound recording went to That Hamilton Woman by Jack Whitney. The Best Art Direction for Interior Decoration in Black and White did go to How Green Was My Valley, beating out Citizen Kane, The Flame of New Orleans, Hold Back the Dawn, Ladies in Retirement, The Little Foxes, Sergeant York, Son of Monte Cristo, Sundown, That Hamilton Woman When Ladies Meet, and Sis uh, Hopkins was a withdrawn nomination. Best Art Director, Interior Color, went to Blossoms in the Dust, only three nominations in that category. Best black and white cinematography, How Green Was My Valley, won in this category as well. Up against Chocolate Soldier, Citizen Kane, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, Sergeant York, Sun Valley Serenade, Sundown, and That Hamilton Woman. Color cinematography went to Blooded Sand. Best film editing, Sergeant York beat out Citizen Kane, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde, How Green Was My Valley, and The Little Foxes. And best special effects went to I Wanted Wings specifically to Farcio Edouard and Gordon Jennings for the photographic effects and Louis Messenkopf for the sound effects. So yeah, most nominations was Sergeant York with 11 and How Green Was My Valley came in with 10 and then Citizen Kane and Little Foxes tied at nine apiece. And then How Green Is My Valley's five wins made it the most common winner. It was the big winner and the only other repeats were Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Sergeant York and Fantasia with two wins each.
0: So out of the awards where Citizen Kane and How Green Was My Valley competed, I only think one How Green Was My Valley won hands down. I would agree. I think the cinematography on How Green Was My Valley was better than the cinematography on Citizen Kane. The the, the other two, I'll give you guys a, a chance to go into your opinions before I go into mine in more detail. I understand why the Academy voted the way they did for Best Picture. Like, I don't agree with their reasoning, but I can see a world in which it made sense to the voters. Best Director, Orson Welles got robbed. And that's nothing against John Ford, but Orson Welles got robbed.
2: We should probably get into that, because if we look back at, historically speaking, if you look at the highest rated movies from the year, How Green Is My Valley is now remembered as the seventh best movie, according to letterboxed voters. Citizen Kane is number one, Sullivan's Travels is two, Maltese Falcon is three, Lady Eve is four, and then we have Ball of Fire and Hell's coming up in there. And yeah, of the four movies I've seen, there's How Green Was My Valley, Hitchcock's Suspicion, The Maltese Falcon, and Citizen Kane. And yeah, I would rank that as Citizen Kane, Maltese Falcon, Suspicion, and How Green Was My Valley. For IMDb, How Green Was My Valley is actually down in ninth place. Still has Citizen Kane at number one. Maltese Falcon comes up to number two. Then Little Foxes, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, Ball of Fire, Sergeant York, and Meet John Doe before we get to How Green is My Valley. So yeah, comparing the two directly, in terms of the majesty and how the cinematography works to the viewer, I completely understand why this was nominated and why it won. I don't know that it deserves it more than Citizen Kane because of the technical... Innovation that Citizen Kane pulled off. Citizen Kane is not the most engaging story, and the people who view for story alone often wonder how was Citizen Kane so highly regarded because the story doesn't feel that special. But if you look at the way things were made, things like the deep focus photography that was developed by Orson Welles mm-hmm. for Citizen Kane, there's a scene where the bank is taking possession of the child or the title character as a child, where they walk through a cabin, and the entire cabin stays in focus the entire time with a moving camera. That's the kind of thing where audiences who knew how to make movies were sitting there going, how did you make that work? How did you do that? It it was certainly one of the most innovative films. Not quite as innovative as people will say, because some of... I've just seen people say, no one did this before, no one did that before. Like, having the camera go through a pane of glass, or having the extreme angles on the shots. Fritz Lang did both of those with M in 1931. Not to take away from Orson Welles, I have no reason to believe that he saw a 10-year-old German film at this point. I don't think it had ever been available to him. And he clearly came up with different solutions than Fritz Lang did, so he wasn't copying long for what he heard. He, same problem, totally different solution. So there was still innovation there. He just... You know, it might have been the first American film to do that, but it wasn't the first film. But yeah, I think the more you understand about the way they put movies together, the more Citizen Kane stands out against its contemporaries and predecessors.
1: Yeah, Trey, I was actually going to say the opposite of what you said was that to me, the one award it, it Citizen Kane absolutely should have gotten over High Noon My Valley was the cinematography. Uh, I think Greg Toland okay. was uh, should have gotten it, and the re and like you know, it's easy for everybody to you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. And you look back and you say, how did they not give it to Citizen Kane? But the Academy has a history of not giving the Best Picture Award to the most innovative film of that year. Because I think in a lot of ways, it's like they're just a little behind the times. I mean, you know, Pulp Fiction lost to Forrest Gump, for Pete's sakes. And and Citizen Kane is so much in your face as a movie in so many ways that I could see some of the Academy just being like, what is this? I don't so. While How Green Is My Valley has a lot more going for it than I would have imagined, there was a lot more political commentary than I expected, which I liked very much. It's also just a more warm-hearted, safe, you know, for lack of a better word, movie. So I could see the Academy looking at this and giving it to that over Citizen Kane. When I've seen the movie now, I understand it. But to me, the cinemat I felt like Greg Tolan's cinematography would have been the easy one to give him because it's not really, like, challenging the, the academy in any real way the way Citizen Kane's construction was generally, but, you know it, it, most people don't really know that, like, uh, most people hadn't seen Citizen Kane, and they didn't see it for ten years, and it wasn't until, I think it's the American cinema, the, the American Cinematheque uh, Cinematographers, like, I forget the name of the group, I'm sorry, I should know this, but it's like they do a, a yearly, they would do a yearly best of films of all time you list and Citizen Kane did not appear on that list until 1952, because nobody had seen it for 10 years. And then it got re-released in, like, 51, and all of a sudden, everybody went, oh, my God, how did we miss this? This thing is genius. So, you know, it was a movie that just didn't, it didn't, it was ahead of its time. It was just too ahead. So, it doesn't me that the Academy gave it to this. Now, I will say, I would still have given Maltese Falcon best picture over this, and Sergeant York best picture over this, so... It wasn't like, you know, that How Green Rose of the Valley just beat Citizen Kane. It managed to beat a lot of other great movies. So, but it's John Ford, and John Ford didn't make bad movies, so I can't be that upset about it.
0: So, we mentioned earlier John Ford being as prolific of a, of a nominee as he was. He was the first back to back director winner. So, this was his second year winning as best director. I. I agree. How Green Was My Valley is probably somewhere around number four, number five on the list of nominees for Best Picture. And again, we're not saying that it's a bad film. We're just saying the competition was that tough. But we are very far removed from the Academy being comfortable with urban films and being comfortable with cynical films. Just if you look at the history of how they voted. so. I love Citizen Kane to death. It is something of a cynical film. Maltese Falcon, the, the same way. So even though there are those strong themes of, in How Green Was My Valley, and in many ways, it's about the disintegration of a family, though it's a disintegration due to outside forces, because it's in this quaint, quiet little Welsh village that's so romantically shot It has a more idyllic and optimistic tone than the subject matter really conveys. And I think that's why the Academy was more comfortable giving it the Best Picture award.
2: That's part of it. And I think Rob hit a a big one when he talked about how hard it was to see. Because you're not going to get people to vote for a movie they haven't watched yet. And William Randolph Hearst saw a little too much of himself in Citizen Kane. Considering Orson Welles used to work for him, he was very worried that Citizen Kane was going to turn into a hit piece directed at him. So he used his newspapers to trash Orson Welles' reputation to say that Welles was a communist and he managed to get it so that Citizen Kane only was shown on two screens in Los Angeles for less than a week and a half. Jeez. So most voters did not have access to it. The fact... That it was so hard to see and yet still got as many nominations as it did, tells me the people who actually saw it recognized, no, this is doing things that haven't been done before, but not enough people saw it for it to win a majority vote in the majority of these categories. So the screenplay it did, because that one it's not about seeing it. That's one where they actually physically hand out copies of the screenplay for people to judge. So I think that's why screenplay was the, the award it it took home. Compared to all the rest, because the rest, it's a matter of seeing a movie that they just didn't see. Which, uh, uh, again,
0: it's it's easy to forget in this day and age. <laughs> this is a period to where Academy voters' mailboxes weren't choked full of screeners when nomination time came around.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I guess the mailbox choking isn't as bad now because they've got they've got their own digital servers. You log in securely and just watch them there. That's how SAG voters are doing for a lot of them. Or... At least that's the way John Sentras talks about it on the Word Balloon podcast. Because the radio station he works for, they're SAG members, so he gets to access to the screeners and gets to vote. Yeah, that's it. it was, this was the time where it was hard to get people to see your movie. So they were, I think it's not until well into the war that they started saying some of the theater exhibitors to get people in started giving Academy voting members discounts to come see movies in Los Angeles to make it easier for them to come out during the war. But that, I don't think that would have happened yet because America was in the war for what, about two months. Yeah. At at this point. Cause yeah, the nominations were announced on February 6th and the actual awards ceremony was February 26th. But even then Hearst's uh, smear campaign against Wells was so effective that the audience audibly booed Citizen Kane every time they announced a nomination. (laughs) God. Yeah, so this is... There are a few years where the Academy made mistakes. This is a year where I understand why those mistakes were made. I I can't hold it against them where in a case where I might have made the same mistakes had I been in their position.
0: Well, and even, even looking at Best Director, I'm not familiar with Alexander Hall, but Again, just a murderer's row. Who's the best director? John Ford, Orson Welles, William Wyler, or Howard Hawks? I mean, I, I can't
2: even think of the
0: modern-day equivalent of that.
1: Yeah, that's a murderer's row of directors right there.
2: Yeah, and I just looked up Alexander Hall, just pulled him up on Wikipedia here, looking at yeah, at his filmography. I don't think I've seen any of his movies. The, the yeah, partial filmography. This here comes Mr. Jordan seems to be the big one. Yeah, mostly in the 30s and 40s. So, and he started as a silent movie actor as well in 1914. So, yeah, it's looks like he's got a decent career, but it looks like this nomination for Here Comes Mr. Jordan might have been the high point. So, he might have been those one of those working directors who that a lot of times if you're the director generally deserves more credit for the finished product of a film than almost anyone. I would say the director and screenwriter are the two most influential ones. Possibly even putting screenwriter at number one because a bad director can destroy a good script, but no director can fix a bad script. And but that said, when I see a someone who's nominated for best director, either he was like really hitting on all cylinders, or maybe you're talking about a time where he's basking in the reflective gory or reflected glory of a really good cast, good screenwriter, good cinematographer. Like maybe that's one where he just had a really good team behind him.
1: There must've been, there must've, there must've been something to here comes Mr. Jordan. Cause Warren Beatty liked it enough to remake it as heaven can wait. And that's a really great movie. Yeah. Could be. I
2: still like the other heaven can wait, but that one, that one was odd. We already talked about it. Cause that was also nominated for best picture, but that one, that that's a weird mix of the, uh, um, and I'm blanking on the star's name right now. And I, I'm used to seeing him, Hume Cronin, sorry, a young Hume Cronin in the original Heaven Can Wait, shows up in heaven and going, I think there's been a mistake. I I, I, I shouldn't be here given the way I live my life, which was a great premise, but I'm not sure I agree with the final morals. But anyway, yeah, so I, are we all in agreement then that it's not that, you know, maybe in a less competitive year, I could see how green was my valley winning. I'm not saying it didn't deserve the nomination, but given what was nominated, I would say it's been all the pack. And yeah, in retrospect, I would put Citizen Kane at number one and understanding why the Academy didn't vote for it the way they could have, if not for Hearst's smear campaign, I would say probably Maltese Falcon would be my second choice.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. So
2: I think that about wraps it up then for this month. So yeah, we'll be back next month when we look at Mrs. Miniver, also with Walter Pigeon and uh, I think we should extend a big thanks to to Rob for joining us for this.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it. This is a fun show and i I'm glad I finally had a chance to watch How Grew is my Valley and not uh, I get rid of my grudge for the against the movie is it's undeserved uh,
0: so Rob, in the unlikely event that there's someone who's been <laughs> living in the podcasting hinterlands. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find your work?
1: Yeah, I do a bunch of shows over on the Fire & Water Podcast Network, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And most specifically to this show, I do the Film & Water Podcast, uh, which is just kind of a random movie review show. I do it intermittently. It it kind of shares uh, uh, airtime with uh, different shows that I do. So, uh, yeah, I just review different movies. We do silence, horror, every uh, you know, action-adventure, comedy, family films. Uh, we even did a softcore adult film at one point. We cover everything on that show, so you can find all that on And Definitely,
0: definitely check it out. I probably wouldn't be behind the mic right now if it wasn't for some of the influences from listening to that show.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
2: Okay, and uh, for everyone else, thanks again for listening. You know, we have switched hosts, so previously, even though... Yeah, we're recording this a bit in advance. So this is the first one we've recorded since switching hosts. That was about 10 months before you're hearing this. But yeah, 99 Years 100 Films has a dedicated feed, if that's not where you're listening to now. And feedback for the show can be left right at the webpage. So it's at anchor.fm, 99 Years 100 Films. When you go to anchor.fm slash 99-years-100-films, If you want to leave us feedback, you can do it by email, or there's even a message button where you can leave a voicemail directly through the website that you may hear in an upcoming feedback episode. Uh, You can also email us directly at 99years100films at gmail.com, and that's with numerals rather than words for both of the numbers.
0: And because of the lead time, we will probably do one-off feedback shows. We're still working that out, but please still send in feedback. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. See you next month.
1: My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.